And now, from our studios in Kansas City, Sci-Fi For Me Radio is live from the bunker. Hi folks, I'm Timothy Harvey with Sci-Fi For Me, and I am joined today by a very special guest, Eric Bress, the director of Ghosts of War, uh, The Final Destination, the 2009 film, and The Butterfly Effect. Um, welcome, sir. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, thank you. Thanks, Tim, for having me here. Just need to correct you. I wrote The Final Destination, did not direct it. That was David Ellis. Got to give credit where credit is due. Absolutely. Um, I did want to say off the bat, I am actually a fan of The Butterfly Effect um, as someone who was not necessarily the biggest fan of a certain actor. Um, I was really impressed with that film. Um, and I also enjoy the fact that time travel stories have a tendency to be mm, not necessarily lean into the real complications and the the ripple effects, the butterfly effect, obviously. Um, and I was actually really, really enjoyed that film. So, well, um, thank you. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm really glad you liked it. And that certain actor gave a hell of a performance and I was sitting there as a director going, damn, he's gonna make me look great. <laughs> you know, the, the fascinating thing about that is that, you know, for Ashton Kutchner's uh, time on television, you, for a lot of us, if you're of a certain age, it was that 70s show and things like that. So it was all very, you know, dude, dude, where's my car? And so there was this, you know, you get the expectation of the kind of characters that people play. And it's always fantastic to sit there and see them show that they can do a lot more than what you've, you know, for whatever reason, they've, they've sort of been pigeonholed in a certain type of role. Um, and the fact that the story was smart um, on top of the performance that you weren't expecting made the film really have a, a pretty significant impact. And as a fan of time travel stories, um, it was it's always nice to see something that actually doesn't just sit there and go, and here's this thing and this thing and this thing. You know, it actually inspires you to think a little bit more than a lot of time travel stories do, so. Well, cool, thank you. Yeah, I mean, when, <clears throat> When Ashton was first brought up, and this is like going back to 2001, 2002, I only knew him from that 70s show as Kelso, the male bimbo guy. And I think it's a testament to his acting because when I walk out of Rain Man, I don't believe that Dustin Hoffman is autistic, but I believed that Ashton Kutcher was a brainless, you know, dum-dum. And when I first met him, he invited me and uh, my writing and directing partner, Jonathan Gruber, to his house. I was like, where'd that guy go? Where's the guy on television? Because this guy is deadly serious and really articulate and incredibly smart and insightful. And he had plastered the script every page all over the room of his office and he was breaking it all down. And this was for our first meeting. And I'm like, Oh shit, this guy's a total pro. <laughs> and he also, I mean, I gotta, I gotta give all props to him of every actor that I've ever worked with. He never flubbed a line. His brain was a machine and you could change it. He could spit it out any way you liked. You could just make all kinds of, you know, uh, uh, you know, changes in direction and, and stuff. I'm lacking on words. Welcome to my morning. Uh, but like, he he could. He was just amazingly proficient and talented. And that's why I was sitting there going, "Wow, he's yeah, he's going to make me look great because he's doing all this this work all by himself. He's amazing." Well, it's it's you know, I think for a lot of people, it it opened up the possibility that he could be more than like it's really really easy for people to sort of pigeonhole actors in certain roles which is silly because of course their job is to play different kinds of people you know very few actors are the people that they we see on screen you know it's just how it works but uh, so and and you have an incredible cast for ghost of war this is really really interesting to me i was watching the film so i, I want to try really hard to stay as spoiler free as possible I feel like I'm going to dance up to the Good end luck. Good a luck, little more it's, it's than I'd like to. Yeah. But um, so I will, I will say that there's a, a early appearance of an actor in the movie who you don't expect to be that briefly in the film 
It's really close to the beginning of the film. Probably, I don't know. Not I know who you mean. Yes. And I'm, I'm sitting there going, is that who I... And then the character's gone, and I'm like, I'm pretty sure that was. And then later in the film, I, I'm sitting there going, okay, okay, okay. But I was, I was looking at it going, okay, clearly I'm wrong. That can't possibly be who I think it is there and gone. Right. Uh, but I'm like, okay, interesting. And it kind of started off something with me on the film, which I thought was really interesting. As somebody who has made independent film, who, who in my day job and in, uh, for, for the independent film community here in KC, I do a lot of editing. So I think about timing and flow and things like that a lot. And one of the things that's interesting about the film is that after a while, you realize that the editing is deliberately messing with you. That there are very specific things that are happening here in terms of the edit where, again, trying to stay too spoiler free <laughs> here, it ends up, there's, there's, a, there's a, and I mean this in a good way, there's a manipulation that is happening here that is really kind of interesting. And as the film unfolds, you start to see, figure out why that's happening. But there were moments I was going, hang on, where am I? What is that? And then it starts to click as it moves along. It's very disorienting in a really interesting way. Um, I, thought it was, I thought it was very, very effective. Well, you know what? Like one of my favorite films since I was 10 was The Shining. And the geography of that film, the way the overlook doesn't make any actual sense. And that if you really were to walk into Ullman's office during the interview and you see a window behind him and there are trees, but later we back out of that room and go around to the kitchen and that we were behind Ullman's office, there are no trees and the upstairs corridor where Danny is on a big wheel, keeps going through a hallway, and we see doors of rooms on the upstairs floor. You're like, well, there could be no rooms there. They would be hanging out over the stairwell into the main lobby. And when I sat down to think, how was I going to pre present a vision for this? Knowing what we know that later comes out in the film, I was like, I have a job to be slightly disorienting, both with the visual style and with the sound. Like I really need to sort of use sound to, there are certain sounds in this film that come more from the end of the movie, but are played in reverse throughout the first portion of the film. They're just, they're, they're atmospheric. They get under your skin. They, you don't know what it means. And at one point a soldier is inside this haunted house and he looks over to a vent and he hears certain strange sounds coming out of it, which, while I can't explain why, um, totally makes sense at the end of the movie why right. that sound is resonating. Maybe it's in his head. Maybe it's in his subconscious. Maybe there's something more here than what we think. Um, as he is living through some visual cue that within the haunted house, that is triggering something inside of him. Yeah, That's yeah. the way I, I can put it, I guess. <laughs> and I suppose I should back up here because I kind of jumped ahead here. Basically, the premise of the film, again, without being too spoilery, is a group of five soldiers, it's toward the tail end of World War II, um, come across, are, are assigned to take over the basically the house-sitting responsibilities of this chateau in, in France. And the... This is early enough in the film, I don't feel too bad. Uh, the previous uh, group of soldiers really wants to leave very quickly. And the new, the, the, uh, the, the characters we're following, these five soldiers, very also very quickly discover there are reasons that the previous group of soldiers wanted to go now. Uh, and, and it becomes a haunted house story, and it becomes a, um, a very interesting way of looking at, well, the PTSD idea that you were talking about, we, we of course, we got, when we started initially talking about even having this interview and, and, and seeing the film, of course, we have the, the press packet comes out. And, and you talk a little bit about the, the relationship um, with, between uh, telling a horror story and actually de dealing with the idea of soldiers dealing with PTSD. 
And as somebody who, as we've talked about on, on several of the shows we've done on Sci-Fi for Me, depression is something that, that several of our staff have experience with and we've struggled with and we, we, we deal with on a regular basis. And so um, dealing with the concept of mental distress and mental illness and mental struggle in the context of a horror film is not unique, but it's often done poorly. It's often very much, this person got a mental issue, therefore they're evil. Um, and there's an interesting, there's an interesting dynamic that happens with the characters of the film because we have an idea for what military behavior is like in wartime. You expect some characters to be noble. You expect some characters to be terrible. You expect some someone who is nominally on your side to be a monster. All these different things play in, but there's layers to this that especially with dealing with the idea of soldiers struggling with mental issues, takes on a whole different level as the film goes on. <laughs> There's just the a struggle. lot happening there. <laughs> right. Right. Well, I mean, that, you know, it's, it's funny because I don't want to speak in any way that's disrespectful or glib about veterans and PTSD. But when this all came to me, it was at that height, that peak in like 2015, 2016, when during, I think, the, the, the politics of the day were bringing out the fact that we don't have enough mental help. You know, there, there is not enough money in the system for all the people who serve our country and are struggling with PTSD uh, after fighting the longest war in history uh, for America. And... It occurred to me that rather than make a movie that I would normally have just gone down the path of, oh, I mean, many have done it. Uh, uh, the Hurt Locker, you know, shows what it's like to come home from Iraq or Afghanistan and be in an American supermarket and be so overwhelmed by the boxes in the cereal aisle that you're having a panic attack. So they've done it in the real world grounded type way. And I thought that maybe there's a way to let the audience feel horror, like what it's like for them, which is like living in a horror movie. In fact, what if you took it to the next level and you had soldiers inside of a horror movie so that we're jumping at things that we're jumping at? And, and it ultimately relates to sort of the way at the end of the Sopranos finale, I knew, I don't know what happened, but I know what it was like to be Tony Soprano for a day. The paranoia and dread that I felt in those final 15 minutes, and especially the final four where I am sweating, just watching a family eat at a diner, to me told me, oh, that must be what it's like to live in constant fear, paranoia, and dread, even when you're just smiling and nodding at your family and having a dinner. And I thought, what better way than to scare the shit out of an audience and then explain, yeah, but this is what it's like for them. And maybe if you knew that, and if everyone knew that, we would get more help to more people who need it because help can help. And I mean, that that's really where this all came from. And not that I'm some saint that steps on a soapbox. It was just like my way of sort of saying, how would I dress this artistically? And the butterfly effect, though no one really talks about it, for me it was, okay, what should be the subconscious takeaway of this film for people 10 years from now? And for me, I wanted it to be, do not leave your children with the neighbor stranger who seems really nice and lovable and affable because he could be a pedophile. Like if you get nothing else from that movie, it was, I want parents to not give their children over to the care of a stranger just because they are in a desperate situation. And for this, it was more, again, it's not a pedestal situation, but it's like, cause I'm not all that. But I thought that would be a great takeaway. Like to feel that that dread you're experiencing, that could be what it's like for someone whose hippocampus has shrunk down in their minds from the literal constant stresses that they're facing on a minute-to-minute -minute basis, which separates daydreams from reality and creates so that fear can be this omnipresent force that you're forced to live with um, 
but address it artistically. I don't expect people watching the film are going to get that, and that's okay. <laughs> but that to me was sort of the genesis of why I even went in this direction in the first place. I completely understand that. There's, uh, I've, I've written some short scripts. I've done some independent film. Uh, there's every now and again, you have that wonderful moment when someone goes, I really loved your film about this. And I'm like, that wasn't the film I was making, but I'm glad you got that out of it because that's really cool. Uh, yeah. Well, and that's the other thing is, is that because I've done film myself and I've been a production designer and I've been, and then some of the stuff has been in, set in the 1930s and 40s. I like film noir movies. So I've made short films in that, in that genre. Of course, a period picture, one of the things that's actually critical is getting the feel of the time, the, feel, the visual texture, and, and the, the costuming is fantastic. I mean, the, the props all look great. It's all very much, you feel, you feel like you're in the right period. I mean, it's every now and again, you know, you'll see with period pieces, sometimes there's a jarring thing and it can be as obvious as, you know, an infamous coffee mug uh, or someplace. But the one of the things that really kind of uh, obviously impressed me as a production designer was building this chateau. This was a physical thing that you guys built. This was not a place you sit there and went, we're going to go to this location. It was, no, no, we're going to build the first floor of this place so we can do a very, very cool tracking shot. And it was, as someone who has very rarely had the opportunity to have the kind of tools to do the great kind of track, that was gorgeous. <laughs> well, thank you. And am I, it, it's really Antonello Rubello, who is the production designer, um, this brilliant Italian production designer who lives in Sofia, Bulgaria, where Millennium uh, Films has. They have their own soundstage. And, and they have New York sets and London streets and all that stuff. It's like Universal Studios, but in Bulgaria. Originally, I didn't plan on ever shooting, <clears throat> excuse me, in Bulgaria. We went to Canada. So we went to the places I'd been before, Vancouver, and we looked at all the places available, like show me your oldest chateaus and mansions. And what we found is even in the most historic places, well, they certainly revamped the kitchen. They, I mean, that was the number one thing where I'm like, none of this is going to work. And in Vancouver, we realized, okay, there are ways with a blue screen transition, we could tie this together. If we shot this kitchen and used the salon of this woman's club and then have them walk through a door and we pick them up on the other side in over at this museum and they let us shoot there between four in the afternoon and six and then we get everything out of there. I mean, and we realized it was never gonna work. But if we went to Bulgaria I don't know anything about Bulgaria. Just the name of the country sounds so distant to me. Um, but it was explained to me, dude, you go there, you're going to get five times the production value. We'll build the set. And the minute they said it, I'm like, really? We're really going to build a set? Because it's got to be big. And they're like, yeah, that's what, that's what, that's what they do. And, <laughs> and when I got there, it was like, holy crap, yeah, we're just looking at old source images off of the internet going, that kitchen. I want the kitchen with the old-timey oven that actually was used back in the day to heat the entire house, not just fireplaces. It was in the kitchen. And, you know, you couldn't recreate that, and you certainly couldn't have it in a single tracking shot. So that, once we went there, everything changed. And we were able to do so much more with the build and props to the, all of the product, the, the production design team over there. I mean, I've been on American sets and this is not to say anything about Americans, <laughs> but sometimes they do exactly what they're, you know, give us this bedroom, the bed's going to be there. And you find out when you pull the bed away, cause you want it on the other side of the wall, they didn't age the paint similarly you know, some, as you know, little things, just mm -hmm. details that it's not even their fault. Who knew you were going to actually open the closet door and have an angle facing the inside ledge of the door? You know, like, but these guys, I don't know, maybe they have just less video games and Facebook over there. They're, they were the ultimate craftsmen. And they, 
and and they poured themselves into the work so well and the the result is on the screen oh yeah no it's it's beautiful the house is the house is a character in its own right which every good haunted house should be uh and i think that there's i mean very quickly you get a sense of where things are and yet there's always a sense of uncertainty because it's the very premise of the film is did you see the thing you saw are you where you where you think you are is there someone standing behind me um <laughs> right <laughs> right because well the other thing is is that there's a lot of i mean this film does not shy away from certain tropes of horror and uh as someone who i'm a huge horror fan i love a lot of great horror films a lot of really bad horror films um one of the things that this film does really, really well before you get some of those tropes, before some of those things that you kind of have come to expect to see in certain types of horror films, you also get pauses. There's a lot of breathing space in this film, which I think a lot of horror directors and a lot of horror filmmakers forget that you need to have a moment for the audience to settle, to breathe, and to not see it coming. Right. There, yeah, there in this movie, I wanted to make sure I had seen another movie and you can believe me or, or not for purposes of the conversation, but the remake of Amityville Horror was just scare, walk around a corner, scare, look up in the bathroom, scare. And I'm like, you can't even build suspense. And Alfred Hitchcock said the scare isn't in the boom it's in the anticipation of the bang it's in the anticipation of it and i needed breathing room in order to with an unsettling backdrop or underscoring it to to earn whatever tropes jump scares were going to come out and as you said this needed to be filled with tropes down to the names of the characters the geek is named eugene the muscly guy is named Butchie. Our hero is Chris Goodson, which is as close to Christ Goodson as I could serve you a sandwich you've eaten before so that you are so familiar with what you think you know that I can pull the rug out later and you'll never see it coming because now I've let you lean so heavily into the familiar, you're just not expecting a turn on the level of which a turn is coming in a very big way. So some of that, you know, as a writer director, I'm scratching my head going, damn, I've always said you shouldn't have the jumping screaming cat in a horror film, but I need a jumping screaming cat. And not that there is one in this film, right. but there is some version of that. And mm -hmm. I kind of needed to sort of create that path in order to suck people into a different vortex later on. Yeah, yeah. I uh, There's so much more I would love to be talking about you with talking to you about with this, but it's very spoiler specific. Uh, um, if, <laughs> it, 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 I'm going to say if the opportunity if the opportunity comes up for you and I to talk later about this, I would love to because I'd love to dive into some of the more spoilery stuff. I would love, like six months from now, I'm like, please, can I read talk with everybody <laughs> yes. so we can have a real I, I, conversation and I can spit out yes. everything I'm really thinking. I would love, I would love that because there's a lot here to go into. Uh, and but I definitely should say that, folks, I would definitely encourage you to check it out. Uh, Ghosts of War is, uh, I was. I'm always skeptical going into a film just because that's my nature. I'm always skeptical going into a horror film because very rarely am I frightened. Um, but I always enjoy a, sh a film that makes me think. I enjoy a film that uh, dives into its subject matter that I think this film does extremely well. Congratulations on that. Um, that looks the way it does. The texture is fantastic. Uh, and there's some fantastic performances in this film. Uh, I think there's some really, really interesting moments where I sat there and went, I don't like this character. And I had to reappraise that. And, and that's something that I think is, uh, is always a great sign of, of, of great performances when someone can make me change my mind about the person I'm watching. I'm thinking of a specific character in mind. Again, spoilers, can't do it. <laughs> so um, yeah, no, um, thank you so much for joining us. I, again, there's so much more I would love to talk to you about with this. Um, 
but uh, and we hopefully we'll get the opportunity to do it again in the future because there's I a lot. I really sincerely fun. hope so, Tim. <laughs> I, I, I can't wait to actually talk to you a little. Oh yeah, there's a little. Oh yeah, there's. Yeah, there's. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> It's tough to not do spoilers when we're talking about this, but yeah. Um, so go see the movie, everyone, and you'll yes, know please. exactly what we're talking yeah, and, about. And the thing is, is that you will know. You'll be like, every time he sat there and went, ah, okay, I know what he's talking about. All right. Right, right. yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Eric Bress, thank you so much for joining us. We really do appreciate it. Well, great to be here. Hope we can do it again. Yes, thank you so much. And now back to Jason. That helps to uh, have the microphone plugged in because, you know, well, it's that I only have four ports on the mixer and I have five microphones that I've got to work with. And yours is plugged in over there, Mrs. Boss. And Hi. mine's plugged in now, but this one I have to switch between this microphone here. And the wireless microphone I used for Good Morning Multiverse, and I didn't have that one. Uh, I didn't have it switched. Slacker. It, it's well. It's been a Monday morning, and I'm I've been running behind and late on a number of different things today. So, um, yeah. It is Monday. It's July thirteenth, and. We have had some communication. I want to do a little follow-up on uh, my rant from Thursday concerning the the uh, the first Whisper Network article from Bleeding Fool. I talked to Chris Braley over the weekend. He is in the editorial staff there. And I am given to understand another article will be dropping possibly tomorrow. But this this cancel culture debate now takes an interesting turn because Huffington Post today posting an article basically saying, no, the cancel culture is not real. What are you talking about? It's not anything. Um, these are isolated anecdotal incidents and there's, there's not really anything. So the gaslighting has begun, folks. Uh, and I experienced a little bit of that over the weekend. I, I have... In, in the last few few days, uh, the last couple of weeks, I've posted little uh, little things on Facebook to see what kind of a reaction I can provoke. And I, I will admit to doing it deliberately uh, just to see what happens. And the, the most recent one I did, and I've deleted all of them now because the experiment is over, but the, the, I, the most recent one got some reactions basically uh, from somebody specifically in the discussion thread reinterpreting things that I said. So asking me a question, and I'd answer the question, and then they'd come back and say, so basically what you're saying is, and they'd completely reinterpret, misinterpret, misrepresent, and put words in my mouth. Kind of like that article, uh, that, that interview between uh, Jordan Peterson and that lady on BBC4. So you're saying aliens. So you're saying, so you're saying this. And I'm thinking, this is where we are now. You know, where you can't even have a discussion or a debate without somebody making an assumption about what you mean. When you say what you mean, no, this is what I mean. I mean X. Oh, so what you're saying is green. No, no, no. I said X. Oh, so what you're saying is three. No, no, no. I'm saying X. And the fact that you are refusing to understand that I'm saying X means that either you're not paying attention... Or you're deliberately misrepresenting what I say in an attempt to skew the narrative toward whatever it is that you want to do. And I am not going to deal with that. I'm not going to put up with that. If you're going to say false things about what I say, and, and in the broad picture, if you're going to say false things about what other people say, then this is no longer a debate. This is no longer a discussion. It's no longer a dialogue. It is... A rampant, overt attempt to misrepresent and mischaracterize points of view that you don't agree with. 
And that is a piece of the cancel culture. And it is real. It does exist. Ask uh, Alexander Duncan. Ask uh, uh, Sean Gordon Murphy. Ask Ethan Van Skyver. Ask John Malin. Ask, uh, what was her name? The Chinese, uh, Chinese slavery book YA author. Uh, the the ones who keep self-canceling their stuff because reasons. So we're going to keep an eye on that. We're going to look at the Bleeding Fool site as it goes, and I think uh, we're going to try to get Chris Braley on here a little bit later on in the week after the second part drops to discuss methodology and process because the wagons are already being circled around this uh, women and comic books um, story, and, you know, the the legalities of it and the questions of, you know, whether it's true or not, or if it's liable or not, or anything like that. So we'll be talking to Chris uh, about that. Now, tonight on uh, H2O Podcast, we are going to be talking about the faithful companions and plucky sidekicks of genre. And uh, that is tonight at 8 o'clock here on uh, Sci-Fi For Me TV. So right now, wait a minute, I hit the wrong button there. Oh. All right, come on. Now I can't get it out of that. There we go. You hit one button and everything decides it doesn't want to work. So tonight at 8 o'clock, which is just in seven and a half hours from now, it is uh, roughly 12.30 central time. So at 8 o'clock tonight, we will be having that discussion about faithful companions and plucky sidekicks. And we are concentrating on the sidekicks, not, you know, maybe not necessarily the you know, the, the romantic interest, because that's kind of a different category. Uh, but, you know, people like Robin and Cato and, and, and uh, that sort of thing. So maybe a few surprises in there. It might go in a direction you might not expect, but that is uh, our, uh, our topic for this evening. And my plucky sidekick over here has been diligently working on tonight's list for... Comic-Con cancellations and such, so we'll have an update on that as well. And I'm, I'm this close, I'm this close to deleting my Facebooking out. So it is what it is. It's just, you know, that's, that's the thing. So um, what else we got going in? Uh, uh, the news over the weekend, Kelly Preston passed away uh, after a, a, a fight with uh, breast cancer. Uh, Mrs. Boston and I were talking this morning about her appearance in, what was it, Space Camp? She's in Space Camp. So a little bit of a genre connection there, but uh, we, do, uh, we do offer our condolences to John Travolta and his family. Um, and it looks like we're getting a new Star Wars animation show, too. There's a lot of news. It's, it's kind of interesting that in this time where things are shut down, restarting, shut down, restarting, we still get a lot of different things that are going on in terms of casting and uh, productions moving around and, and things going on. Uh, the Batwoman casting is already causing some ripples in, in, in social media. Some people are questioning whether or not she's lesbian enough of an actress to, to play the lesbian Batwoman. And at some point, well, we're past the point where it's gotten stupid. Um, this, this idea that only people of a certain type can play characters of a certain type is, is ridiculous, folks. Uh, you know, to, to sit there and say, who was it? Was it, who was it that was, uh, uh, dropped out of a project was last week? The week? Halle Berry. Halle Berry. Okay, so that's two now because... Uh, Halle Berry dropped from a project that where she was going to play a trans character. We had uh, the the uproar over Scarlett Johansson playing a trans character, and this idea that only a trans 
performer can play a trans character is ridiculous. It is segregationist. It is Jim Crow level stuff. Only, only blacks can play blacks. I get it. Only, you know, but you have to be black enough. Um, only gay people can play gay people. Only lesbians can play lesbians. Only trans people can play trans people. This is a slippery slope, and it is not going to end well because it is motivated by the wrong mentality. It's motivated by this idea that we are going to save these people or help these people when all you're doing is isolating and segregating. And this is what this is what the whole civil rights movement of the 1960s was was about, was ending this kind of segregationist mentality. I mean, okay, let me let me paint a picture for you. Let me do, do an analogy here. Because there are some people in this audience and some people out on the internet and some people in social media that were not around for the 60s. I wasn't around for the 60s. I'll, I'll admit that. But I've seen the photographs. I've read the articles. I've seen, I've seen some historical stuff. And the photographs of the water fountains, for example, colored only, whites only, how is that any different now from... Trans only, lesbians only. This kind of segregation mentality continues to uh, foster this environment of us versus them. This, this tribalism is part of what causes the culture war, the, the, the cancel culture. Well, I'm going to call it the cancel cult. That is that is keeping everybody at each other's throats. This us versus them mentality is the way that the media and the politicians keep us fighting each other so they can stay in control. It's not about whose rights are being trampled at this point. It's about whose power is being threatened. Who's in charge? How much can I be in charge? How much power do I have? How much power can I get? And how much of that power is over you? How much of that power gives me the ability to control what you think, to control what you say, to control how you believe? And now we're at 1984. We saw it here, uh, was it about a week ago, with Twitter posting their new acceptable words. This list is pure newspeak that's straight out of 1984. And, and I need to remind people that that was not an instruction manual, nor was Fahrenheit 451, nor was Brave New World, nor was Animal Farm. And that's where we are. I did, a, I did an episode a long time ago of, of Chilling with Pineapple, and I may have to revisit this. We are at the intersection of those four books. And I've even seen a Venn diagram that includes a couple of other dystopian, uh, dystopian stories that puts us in dead center in the bullseye of all of this terrible circumstance. And I, I, I wake up in the morning and I wonder how we're going to get out of it. And I don't, at this point, I don't know that I see a, an easy way out of it. And maybe that's just me being pessimistic. Um, maybe I'm just, maybe I'm just at that point now where I have... I have become both Statler and Waldorf, and I have decided that none of it is worth the attention. Uh, none, none of it is is, uh, and I don't, I don't want to get into that place where I'm pessimistic about everything. Uh, I've been a cynic all my life, but now to see, you know, I've been in the media for thirty years. I know how the game is played. If you watch the movie Wag the Dog, it is very much like that. Um, 
And it's very much like that in a lot of places, not just, you know, one or two particular media outlets. But you stop and consider that all of the media, most of the media, as far as the mainstream media, they're owned by six global corporations. Six. Viacom CBS is one of them. General Electric was one of them. Um, Disney. I don't remember the other ones, but six. Six corporations own all of it. And you can't convince me that there's not an agenda in some of this stuff. Not all of it, but some of it. And not to get into the politics of everything, uh, because, you know, this is, this is, you know, Ostensibly, this is genre, but it it feeds into that. You look at what's happening in comics with this Whisper Network, and yes, the old boys network and the people knowing people, and it's not what you know, who you know. That's that's gone back decades. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about people who are actively campaigning to shut out or destroy or do harm to other people in in an industry. Does it happen in other industries? I'm sure it does. We don't cover those industries. We cover science fiction, fantasy, horror. So the comics conversation is where we're putting our focus. I'm sure it happens other places. It happens in video games. We're start, we're seeing that We've seen that in a while, uh, for, for a while. We're seeing it in anime, and that one is particularly interesting to watch, and I need to, to go back and really take a look at some of this, uh, because now, with anime, you're also factoring in not just the culture war that's going on in the United States, but the, the, the difference in cultures between the United States and Japan. How do they see this stuff? What are their opinions about the Americanized translations of their shows and the different ways that those things are presented? Something I will admit, I, I'm not, I have not boned up on that because I'm not really big into anime. Uh, but there are some YouTube channels out there that get into that uh, fairly extensively and they do some pretty good analysis. But it's something that I've got to catch up on among all of the other things that I've got to do um, but yeah it's just it's one of those things where I I don't see an answer I don't think there's any one particular easy answer um, but you know it's it's one of those things we're just gonna have to muddle our way through and make it up as we go but at some point somebody, high up in the comics publishing has to say enough is enough you know and and i get that it's a unique situation in that all a lot of these people are freelancers but freelancers are hired using a particular set of criteria and the particular set of criteria should include how you behave in public when you're representing the company and that includes Comic Cons and other conventions and online social media presence and and that sort of thing. I I don't see where, you know, you can sit there and go, Well, all 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 opinions are mine on your social media. Okay, well that's fine, but when you attack people who criticize your work uh, when you attack people and insult people who don't agree with you, then I'm perfectly within my right to take my money and spend it someplace else. And so the people that you work for ha have to face that consequence as well. If a creator insults the audience and turns away the market, then the person that creator works for has a, vet, a vested interest in making sure that kind of thing doesn't happen because it affects sales. And bottom line, these companies 
are about selling their product. They're not about social social change. They're not about, you know, making a positive impact for any particular marginalized group or anything. It's all about selling stuff. Changing your icons and posting, you know, certain particular pictures or black, you know, white, white text on a black screen or whatever, any of this stuff. They don't care. They're trying to sell a product and they're trying to appeal to a market that may not necessarily always buy their stuff and be interested in their stuff. And we've seen this a long time in genre where you have publishers and video game developers and uh, you know comic book publishers and book publishers both and TV and movie produ production companies all sit there trying to kowtow and cater to a very small percentage of the overall marketplace and I my opinion, this is just me ranting, and a lot of it, yes, is anecdotal, but I have seen so much of it. You can't tell me, Huffington Post, that this is a small thing. It's not. You know, the Huffington Post wants to gaslight everybody into saying, oh, no, this is just, these are isolated incidents. This is not, you know, this is, this is nothing. Again, it it is it is not nothing, and I really you know, hope that we can get away from this particular topic as as, as a sole topic for for me sitting here uh, ranting about things. Some of the things that we've got planned, we are in discussions with uh, several people to get on here for doing interviews and conversations. Uh, besides Chris over at, at Bleeding Fool, we've reached out to Mitch Breitweiser. We've reached out to Ethan Van Skyver. We're looking at, uh, you know, we're going to be contacting NASA to see if we can do a science week with them. Uh, so if you've got uh, people that you think would be interesting interview subjects for us, you can send us an email. It's there on the bottom uh, of the of the screen. Uh, live from the bunker at sci-fi for me.com for those of you who are listening to this show as a podcast uh, we do invite you to watch live uh, noon central time monday through thursday uh, for the video over on our youtube channel and you can get there by going to sci-fi for me.tv and let me do a couple of little bits of business here if you would like a discount on swag uh, we do have a discount negotiated over at SuperheroStuff.com. If you use the promo code sci for me 10 at checkout, you will get 10% off your order. And if any of you are interested in uh, supporting us uh, in a financial way outside of, you know, thumbs up and sharing and, and commenting, we do have a Subscribestar account uh, with 5 and $10 level tiers. And... Uh, we also have, uh, let's see, where did I put it? Um, we also have stickers available. Uh, these little stickers with our logo on it. If you would like one, you can send us a self-addressed stamped envelope. Sci-Fi for me, 1503 Main Street, number 305, Grandview, Missouri, 64030. And we will swing by and check the box and get that to you for just the price of a stamp on an envelope. So, oh, what else What else are we looking at doing here? Um, Salacious Crumbs episode 95 is tomorrow, Tuesday, and a new TARDIS sauce will hit the air on Thursday. We're off a week because of uh, individual schedules from everybody that was participating. And then Friday we have a new Ranker Pit, and we are trying, very desperately, trying to get a special guest for Friday. We have sent uh, invitations, reached out, and done some follow-up. And hopefully we'll, uh, we'll hear back whether or not we're going to have this guest on Friday. And next Friday, 
We'll have a special edition of Deep Space Minds. We'll be talking about the Yorktown A Time to Heal fan film from 1987, and we'll have some special guests on for that as well. So I've got about five minutes to kill here. So what uh, what do we what do we need to? Oh 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 oh. Posted over on uh, on Instagram. And people, uh, uh, we got a couple of people asking if Mindy was in the hospital. No. It was, uh, it was a minor thing. But uh, it, was, it was minor enough that we, that we can continue our count. We are at 50 days without an incident. So there is that. So uh, anyway. Just, just, it's just one of those things, right? All right, so that's going to do it uh, for this hour. I'm going to go ahead, go ahead and cut out. Thanks very much for watching. And uh, again, if you have suggestions for people that you would like to see on this show for conversations, send us an email uh, live from the bunker at sci-fi-for-me.com, and we will add those to our list of invites, which right now is you know three or three or four pages. You see the all, the, all of these. All of these names here, these are people that we want to bring onto this show and have conversations with them. So um, uh, we will uh, be following up on that. And tomorrow we will do it again at noon central. In the meantime, stay, uh, stay here on Sci-Fi For Me TV. We'll have Comic-Con updates later on tonight. A brand new H2O podcast tonight at 8 o'clock. And... Um, those of you who are just finding the channel, we do invite you to subscribe. And everyone, make sure that your notifications are on so you know when we put new content out, which we're doing almost every day now. And those Comic-Con uh, updates we've been doing now since March 15th. And we've got almost a thousand different events that have changed their schedule and we have been reporting on that as that goes so we'll update you on that and we will be back with more tomorrow here live from the bunker this has been a presentation of sci-fi for me radio copyright 2020 by flaming dog media llc all rights reserved no portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of flaming dog media